Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. We're looking at Romans 9 and 11. First thing I want to say, um, and I have this in your notes, and one of the problems of Calvinism is that it takes biblical words and then pours new meanings into those biblical words. So let me take you through, before we get into the text, some understandings. There's three words that are important to understand from a biblical context that when you look at the Bible about God. The first one you have to understand is what does power mean? What does dominion mean? And what does authority mean? So the three words are power, dominion, and authority. Those three aspects denote what sovereignty means, okay? The Calvinists, unfortunately, put in a very Greek, Gnostic, Manichaean, Gentile interpretation into sovereignty. But when you look at sovereignty in the Bible, it includes those three aspects of power, authority, and dominion. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say that you live in the Middle Ages and you're on the king's land. You're a feudal lord or you're a peasant or whatever. The king is there and you live on a portion of the land appointed to you. And then obviously you basically work for the king, you work for your lord. Okay. When we say that king is sovereign, we're saying he has the right to rule. Okay. When we say that king has power, It's that he has power given to him, and how he exercises that power is up to him. And we say that king has authority, and how he exercises that authority is up to him. Okay? But let me ask you this. Even though the king has sovereignty and all three power, authority, dominion, does he control everything in minute detail? Okay. Good. That's that's the way I want you to start thinking. So like in the peasant's house, you're there, you're a peasant, and you live under the king's authority, power, and, and dominion. But in that house, he allows each servant to have the freedom to do what they want to do in their own house. Okay. Does that mean that since the king allows that kind of freedom in the peasant's house that he is no longer sovereign? Does that mean he's no longer powerful? Does it mean he's no longer has dominion or authority? So with that illustration, that's the understanding that you should have of God's sovereignty. Is yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he has authority, power, and dominion. But in all cases, he doesn't choose to exercise all of that authority, all of that dominion, all of that power for certain reasons. Could he? Yes. Does he all the time? No. Now, for instance, today we're in what's called the mystery kingdom. That means God rules in the hearts of believers. 
You cannot see the mystery kingdom, and it's a mystery kingdom because that's what Jesus called it in Matthew 13, and he gave a list of nine parables that explained how the mystery kingdom would go. That being the case, what it says that in during this period of time, God's sovereignty and authority and power is seen in his believers. Not necessarily Nancy Pelosi or Gavin Newsom or any of these other people who are unbelievers. And so there's a limiting that God does of that in this current period of time. We're not saying that God doesn't have the power, authority, dominion, and has the right to rule. We're not saying that. We're just saying you're not seeing the full-blown extent of that. There is a certain amount where God gives his creatures a certain amount of free will. Okay? So then, let me give you another scenario. If you jump into the messianic kingdom, where the rod of iron rule is, which is very different than now, you will see that there is a limit in human freedom in the messianic kingdom. So much so that under the rod of iron... Messiah does not allow any outward or physical manifestation of evil to occur in the Messianic age. So in that age, you're now starting to see where God is now moving his sovereignty further, his power, authority, and dominion further to where there's absolutely no physical manifestations of evil. Now, the evil still exists in the heart of the individual, but you're not going to see it in the streets. Do you see how that age is different than the age we live in? That there is some now God holding back his power, authority, and dominion and not exercising it fully in this age. Okay. If you do see that and understand the illustration, then you understand the biblical idea of sovereignty. God depending on the age, depending on what the rule is, if he's in a theocracy with Israel, which is different than the mystery kingdom or a messianic kingdom, will give humans more freedom or less freedom. So in this age, there's a ton of freedom being allowed. This is why it's called the age of grace. In the theocracy, let me ask you this. If you lived in Israel's theocracy, you did something wrong you're going to die. There was like 32 to 35 different sins you could commit and got you the death penalty, right? And it was immediate. You die at that point in time. Or you got a sickness or all kinds of stuff. Like, for instance, if, your if you suspected your wife cheating on you, you would make a drink for her and she would have to drink it and it had all these other ingredients in it and she would drink it if she was guilty it would manifest in her leg and in her gut and and it would make her sick. If she got sick and her leg rotted, that meant that she had committed adultery. Now, I want you to think about that. How That's different than today, right? We don't do things like that. We make them take a polygraph instead, right? Okay. But what are we saying is in, in different epochs of time or eras, you will see more freedom or less freedom given in terms of believers and what they can and cannot do, and even unbelievers in terms of what they cannot and cannot do. But throughout all the ages, 
throughout all the ages, God will not force people to believe in him. And it doesn't matter what age they're in. Messianic age, in the Messianic age, they have to still come to faith in Jesus Christ. Even though they see him, they still have to believe in him. They still have to get saved and they have to be born again. All the way back to the patriarchs, Israel, and today. So what we see is the Calvinists put on absolute sovereignty on God, on humans. And they say, if, if God is not absolutely sovereign, then he's not in control. Well, then they don't understand biblical authority. I could have authority over my kids, but you know they go in their rooms and they could do the opposite of that. Does it mean that I have less authority if my kids don't obey me? No, because I still have the authority. Now, I have, I have the power to make my kids do things, right? And I can do it one of three ways, I guess. I can go in there and tell my kids, clean your room. And I can walk away. And just by that, I'm exercising authority. I have the right to tell them to clean their rooms. Or I can say, clean your room, and I'm going to keep checking back on you every 10 minutes. So I can keep doing that. Or I can say, clean your room, and I'm going to stand here and watch you clean your room. Now, in all three examples, what I am doing is I still have authority no matter what scenario I put the kid in, whether I say do it and leave or check upon, no matter what, I'm still retaining authority. I haven't lost any authority. So our point is to the Calvinists is just because God gives freedom to man to make a decision to accept him doesn't limit God's sovereignty, authority, dominion, or power. God is just as powerful. In fact, it would show even more power that he allows free creatures to make a decision for him. The Calvinist God is a small God because in their terms, God can only control what he controls and he can't allow freedom because it would be out of his control. So that's a small God. The, the biblical God is so in control that he can allow human freedom and freedom among angels as well to follow him or not. So I want to make that point going before we go into jumping in Romans 1, that when the Bible says God is sovereign, what we're saying is, yes, he has the right to rule. He has the power to rule. He has the dominion to rule. Has everything been put under Jesus' dominion right now? It says it hasn't. It says it, it, Hebrews 2 says... The dominion that belongs to Jesus has not been given to him yet. So we biblically can say, does he have all dominion yet? No, he will one day. But what is God doing? He's now making his enemies a footstool for him, currently speaking. So he, hasn't, has, he doesn't have all that dominion. So I want to make sure we're understanding that because when we get into Romans 9, all those topics are going to come on about power and sovereignty and, well, why, why aren't the Jews saved? And they're doubting God's power. And, and those are the questions that we're going to have to answer to the Calvinists because he's pouring a different meaning into it. We talked last week about Israel, their role, all the blessings they give. 
And the, 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 the questioner, the interlocutor that Paul is arguing with is questioning what happened to Israel. If you're so, if you're so sure that God's going to make good on his promises, Paul, then what happened to Israel and all the promises to her? And so Paul is explaining this. And verse six, it says this, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. And so it's not like God broke his promises because what they're seeing is Israel didn't get saved with the coming of the Messiah. And, and so they're having a hard time with it. And they're, they're not, the, the arguer is not connecting the dot that Paul is making. Paul is, is, has been talking about faith all through Romans 1 through 8, that the way to receive righteousness is to be, come to faith, right? Let me explain what the Jewish arguer and what he's thinking. The Jewish arguer, believe it or not, is somewhat fatalistic in his interpretation. He's very much on the level of a Calvinist, believe it or not. Because under, under the Jewish interpretation of salvation, they believed Gentiles could not be saved unless they were proselytites. That means they had to become Jews and be circumcised and go through the whole thing. So therefore, it was fatalistically determined that God is not saving the Gentiles. But who he was saving was Israel. That Israel, by birth, was automatically saved. So you see, that's a form of fatalism. You see why that stopped Jewish evangelism to the Gentiles? They just stopped because their their theology was saying, the Gentiles can't be saved anyway. Why even go after them? They're dogs. They're going to hell. In fact, they had an old saying among the Jews about Father Abraham that Father Abraham stood at the gates of hell and if by accident a Jew were to be thrown or cast into hell, then Abraham would rescue him before he got cast into the lake of fire and before going into Gehenna. Now, that's unbiblical, but that's how the Jews came up with the thinking and their theology that no Jew will go to hell. By, by being a physical descendant of Abraham, and second, by attaining righteousness through the law. Like the rich young ruler, I've, attained, I've done all these things. What more do I need to do, right? They thought by outwardly keeping the law, they attained righteousness. So we're wrong on two fronts. You're not saved because of genealogy, and you're not saved because of works righteousness. And Paul's been making this point. Okay. So believe it or not, the Calvinists in the story is the Jewish interlocutor. It's the Jewish arguer with Paul who believes in a form of fatalism about salvation. So what he is saying is this to Paul. Messiah comes. I know what Isaiah predicted. And all Israel is supposed to be saved. All Israel. And yet I don't see all Israel being saved. I only see a few groups over here and over here among us Gentiles, or among the Gentiles, but I don't see the whole nation as a whole. In fact, the whole nation, in the majority of them, went along with the religious leaders and rejected their own Messiah. So, Paul, you've got to do better than that, because if you're telling me God makes good on his promises, didn't he promise the Jews that all Israel would be saved? Okay, you following the logic of the interlocutor, the arguer. I'm not saying he's right, but I want you to at least know how he's arguing. He thinks automatically the Jews are saved 
And he can't figure out why the whole nation didn't get saved because it's a, it's a, it's a no-brainer. When the Messiah comes, they're all going to get saved. And Paul says, wait a second, you're misunderstanding things. And so go to the next page, and Paul is going to bring out an issue that the arguer should know from the Old Testament, but apparently is not employing into this argument. Paul says this, for they, talking about the Jews, are not all Israel. Notice the term all Israel is a direct reference to other passages in the Old Testament about the remnant of Israel. So not all Israel, not all Israel who are, who are of Israel. So for, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Okay, the of Israel refers to the non-remnant and the all Israel refers to the remnant. How do we know? Because Isaiah 10, 20 through 23 says, only the remnant will be saved. That's all of Israel. And then Paul will use the term, and the end, all Israel will be saved. So Paul is referring to the remnant that goes back into the Old Testament. Do you know when... The remnant language started to begin in the Old Testament. This is important to understand because Paul is taking the interlocutor back and saying, ah, you forget something. You're forgetting the concept of the remnant of Israel. And because you fail to understand the remnant of Israel, this is why you're failing to understand my argument about faith. Okay. The remnant talk about Israel, that there were two Israels, started with the conf confrontation on uh, Mount Carmel with Elijah. Okay? And you know the whole story about the, the, the sacrifice that comes down and gets consumed. Then what happens immediately after that? I mean, he kills all the, the what, 400, I think, 400 prophets of Baal? Or was it 700? He kills hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Baal. And then what happens? He finds that Jezebel is coming after him to kill him. So what does he do? He bolts. Do you remember where he bolted to? He goes to the cave of Elijah, doesn't he? Well, it's called Elijah. Where am I? Wait. I'm getting my prophets confused. He goes into Arabia... And then God speaks to him in Arabia. And do you remember what Elijah said to, to Yahweh? There's no one left. I am the only one left. You remember that? And then a sign came to Elijah, if you recall. I think this is like in 1 Kings, somewhere in that neighborhood. Yeah, 1 Kings 19. God comes to him, and he comes to him in a miraculous way. And there's, th there's four elements that God comes to him, but he finds that God's not in the first three elements. You remember that? Okay, so God comes to him, uh, first of all, with noise, three noisy things, if you recall that. And I, I'm going off the top of my head... Ah, there it was. Wind, earthquake, and then fire, right? 
Was it wind, earthquake, and fire, right? Yeah, okay. So the first elements come to Elijah, and they're noisy. Wind comes, but God was not in the wind, right? Then the, el- the second element comes, what did I say? I keep forgetting. Wind, earthquake, the earthquake comes, and God's not in the earthquake. And then the fire comes, and God's not in the fire. All three elements are noisy, 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 noisy. And what's the fourth element? The still, small voice that God is occupying and his presence is in the still, small voice. Most people don't understand the passage. They think the still, small voice is God. It's not God. God is in the still, small voice. His presence is in the still, small voice. The still, the still small voice is not God. He's in it. What's the lesson to Elijah? Elijah said he was the only one. Then God comes in the noise of three different elements, and he's not in it. But then God comes, and he's in the element of the still, small voice. Who is the still, small voice that God is with? Any ideas? It's this group that you can barely hear. It's this group that's not the loudest, because they're so small you can barely hear them. But they're there. It's not where the majority is at. It's where the remnant is. I am with the still small voice. The still small voice is the remnant of Israel. I will not be found where the majority of the noise is at. I will be found in the quiet still voice of my remnant, which is barely heard. But they're there. And don't forget, Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. You're not alone. We're just unconnected. But Elijah, I'm always with the remnant, the still small voice. Now, here's the question. The application then comes to you and I, and I'll, I'll, I'll let me dovetail, not dovetail, but let me go off track a little bit. The remnant of the church is the same. The remnant of the church is always the still small voice. Because the remnant of the church will not be in the mega church where the loudest noises are being made, where the biggest drum set and, and, and racket is and the biggest ones making the waves and those going on TV and the ones controlling the narrative God's saying, I'm not with that. I'm in the still, small voice. And you won't even know these guys even exist. You won't even know that these groups, because they're so small, they don't make very much noise, but they do tell the truth. That's where God is. And so back to to what Paul is saying, he's telling the arguer, you fail to understand the nature of the remnant. And because you fail to understand the nature of the remnant of Israel, you do not understand that there are two Israels. There is the biological descendants of Abraham, and then there's the spiritual element of the Jews that actually believe in Yahweh through faith. The remnant is the group that believes. 
The non-remnant is the majority of Israel that simply won't believe. Are they Jewish? Yes, they're Jewish. Therefore, the remnant, according to Galatians, according to the Apostle Paul, is called the Israel of God, Galatians chapter 6. And so this remnant, believe it or not, is still with us today, and they're in the church as well. The remnant of Israel, there's believing elements of Jews, but they occupy two positions. They occupy a position in the body of Christ, because the body of Christ is made up of Jew and Gentile, but they also occupy the position of the remnant of God, the Israel of God. So if you see a modern-day Jew today that goes to a church, they occupy both positions, a remnant, uh, Israel, and a part of the body of Christ, whereas you and I as Gentiles do not occupy the Israel of God. That is for physical Jews who are believers in the Messiah. Okay, so that being stated, any questions before I move any further on that? Okay, so let me, let, let's talk about this. He's basically splitting Israel into two. says, look, there's, God has made it evident that there's two Israels. And it's the one element that believes in God that is part of this remnant that Isaiah predicted that in the future will be saved. Now, let me explain this about the future of the remnant. And this is where it starts getting confusing a little bit. Paul will say in chapter 11 that this remnant or I should say Israel, that all Israel will be saved. And then you have to parse that out. What does he mean? Well, he says the whole nation will be saved at one point in time. But then at the same time, though, you have passages like Isaiah talk about that only the remnant gets saved. So who's, is there a contradiction? Isaiah is saying only a remnant gets saved. Paul is saying all of Israel gets saved. What could the two possibly mean? It seems like a contradiction. Either the whole country does or a portion does. What's the deal? Well, then you bring in other passages like Zechariah 13 and that talk about that during the tribulation period, two-thirds of Israel will be physically wiped out. And what is left? The one-third. Therefore, the solution that Scripture is presenting is that in the future, the remnant is the one who gets saved because the remnant always believes because of their free will. But because two-thirds of Israel has been annihilated by the Antichrist, that one-third becomes all of Israel because they're the only ones left. So the remnant believers are the only ones alive at the end of the tribulation that, that survives, and they become all Israel. Hence, fulfilling what Paul said, all Israel will be saved. And so you have to bring in some of those other passages to understand, look, we're dealing with two Israels. The Israel today in the nation itself, right now, they're the non-remnant. Now, how do you become a remnant believer? You have to just believe in the Messiah. That's, that's it. So the majority of Jews in the world are non-remnant. It doesn't mean they can't get into the remnant, but uh, the Jews, most of the Jews today occupy that position of being 
a non-remnant believer. Okay, now let's move to the next text. Verse 7. Now he's going to give an illustration with Ishmael and Isaac. And the illustration is, is to illustrate to the Jewish interlocutor, to the Jewish arguer with the Apostle Paul, that you're not getting saved simply by your physical heredity. And Paul's going to make this point using Ishmael and Isaac. Verse 7 says this, Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called or shall be reckoned. Okay, folks, unfortunately, when the Calvinists get to this, they read into the text something that's not there. Paul is not discussing salvation. He is discussing the Abrahamic promise as an illustration. And he's using this illustration not to make a point about salvation per se, but to make a point that you don't get saved by your physical heritage. That's the point. But the Calvinists say, no, he's talking about uh, one guy he saves and the other guy he rejects. And you're like, how could you even go there? How could you even make that theological statement based on the whole context? But they do. They do. Anyway, let's unpack this a little bit. So, so again, based on the argument, not all Israel is Israel, he gives the illustration. Look, he says there's two boys here, Isaac uh, and Ishmael, right? There's two boys. And then he says in verse 8, that is, those who are the children of the flesh... These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. So basically, he's making a distinction between Isaac and Ishmael. What, what was the choice that God told Abraham about where the Abrahamic covenant would go through? Through his firstborn? No, not Ishmael. It's going to go through Yitzhak. So the, the God makes a decision that it's going to go through him. Now, does that mean that Ishmael can't be saved? Not at all. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about the individual who will carry the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why the, the Paul is using the word promise. Have you noticed that in the text? The Calvinists won't notice the word promise. What promises are we referring to? The Abrahamic promise in verse 8. Okay, so all, all Paul is saying is, look, you can be a physical descendant of Abraham, and and that doesn't guarantee you anything. Because look at these two boys as an example. One was passed over for the Abrahamic covenant; the other one was chosen for the Abrahamic covenant. So heredity has nothing to do with the argument. Paul is saying, because look what happened with the boys: same father, but different mothers. Right. Well, then the interlocutor is going to come back and argue against that. Well, I understand, it, but there's two different mothers, and that's why he went with the, the other one. Let me ask you this. I know this sounds crazy, but they're going to say, well, you know, uh, Hagar was an Egyptian, right? That's where Abraham picked her up from, right? Brought her back. She's an Egyptian. Rebecca 
Is she Jewish? There are no Jews at this point. You see what I'm going? Because see, if you're going to make the argument, if the interlocutor is going to make the argument, well, no, Rebecca is more in the Jewish line. Wait a second. No, 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 no. Abraham occupies both positions of Jew and Gentile. Did you know that? That's why he's the father of faith. He is a Gentile who then becomes the father of the Jewish nation. But he's a Gentile. Now, he's from the line of Shem, no doubt about that. He's from the Semitic people. But there's no Jews living at the time. There's no such thing. The Jews start becoming Jews when the 12 tribes form and then start having kids. And that truly is where you get the Jewishness of things. But before then, they're Semitic or whatever, you know? So if someone wants to make a biological argument, well, of course God didn't choose Hagar. She's a Hagarite. She's an Egyptian. Well, the same is true for Rebecca. She's not Jewish either. So that argument fails. It, it, it just shows you sometimes the ignorance of people in understanding Jew versus Gentile. It's just, what are you talking about? So anyway, I, I digress, but but... He's making the argument then, okay, my point in, in, in salvation is it's not by physical birth. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus about what kind of birth you have to have? You have to be born again, and he was referring to spiritually, not ethnically. And because of that, he says it's not by the will of the flesh nor by your fathers or anything like that. Now, when Jesus says not by the will of the flesh, or and he says it's not by your, your lineage, what was he referring to? He's, again, he's referring to that, you can, first of all, you can't make yourself born again. I have to make you born again by seeing your faith, and then I regenerate you. But he's also saying about your lineage, I don't care what your lineage is. Anyone can be born again because they have to believe. That's why he says the Gentiles are entering in before you do, because they simply want to believe. Let me stop right there. Any questions so far on that? Everybody, go ahead. His lineage obviously comes from the, one, the, the three boys of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He comes from the line of Shem. Yeah, the Semitic. That's, that's a Semitic people. Um, doesn't necessarily make, them, make the Semitic people Jewish. It just makes them Semitic the, the, from the line of Shem. Just from Shem. It's a derivative of Shem. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shemites, uh, and so we call them Semitic, but they're Semitic peoples, but that's the genealogy they come from. That's a modern term, by the way, Semitic. It's a modern term. It's not, not an ancient term. The ancient term would be Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You, you're either a Hamite, uh, Japhethite, or if that's the way we say it, I think. It has to be Japhethite or something like that, right? Japhite? Japhite? I don't know. Semite is easier, I think. But anyway, so he says, okay, so the reckoning will come through the boy for the spiritual blessing. And then in verse 9, he says this, for this is the word of promise. At this time, you can go to page the next few pages over, for this is the word of promise. What promise is he referring to? What's the promise again? Remember Abrahamic promise. So anytime you see the word promise, it's referring to the unilateral Abrahamic promise in the context. For this word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. 
And again, God made this decision to, to say, I'm going to choose the, this route for blessing. This is the route it's going to take. Now, on that being the case, let me ask you this. People who believe in free will, like I do, libertarian free will, it is not a problem for me, and I don't think it should be a problem for you, if God chooses to use people in different ways. He has the right to do that. Now, he doesn't do that for salvation. He doesn't, any, many, mighty, mo, I'm going to pick these people, and I'm damning the rest to hell. We're not talking about salvation. But when God chooses individuals to use he has the right to do that. And that's not Calvinism. That's just God selecting like a Billy Graham. I'm going to select him to be the messenger in the 20th century to spread the gospel. Okay? And there's people like that right throughout history that God just simply selects and says, I'm going to give you the gifting. I'm going to give you five talents. And this is the job I need you to do. That's okay with me. Being a non-Calvinist, that's okay. And so what you're seeing with the Abrahamic promise, that's what he's doing with Yitzhak. He's just saying it's going to go through him. Now, God has his own reasons, but he can make those. He can do that. So please do not confuse this selecting for service with selecting for salvation. That's the death knell for Calvinism. They actually blend the two together and equate selection for service with selection with salvation. Now, all of you have been chosen to do something something for God, right? We all have our different tasks. Why did he choose you to do that? I don't know, but he, but he basically said, you're going to be doing this. I'm going to gift you for this, and this is your task in life. This is your mission in life, and you're to, to fulfill that. That's his choice. The gifts that you have, by the way, you did, did you select your gifts? No, you did not. You are given your gifts by God's wisdom and saying, this is his mission or her mission, and I, these are the gifts they need to have in order to accomplish this mission. So there's a lot of things that you weren't chosen for. I mean, sorry, things that were chosen for you by God. But let me ask you this. Were you, did you choose to be born in this era? No. Were you, did you choose to be born in this part of the world? No. Your parents did, right? They moved me to this ugly Bakersfield. And so you, you can blame your parents for that, not God. And that they moved you to this, this desert-like condition here. But nonetheless, all those choices that God made for you that you didn't make, that's not a sign of Calvinism. That's actually a sign of grace. What do you mean? Well, the issue then becomes, if you read Acts 17, that you were put in this area, you were put in this time period so that you might seek God and perhaps find Him. So basically what God did is He made it advantageous to you to live during this time period and to function in this part of the world so that you would come to faith, and serve him faithfully with your life. So basically, all these other decisions that you didn't make were made by God for your best advantage spiritually. Because he's a good father, and he knows what's good for you. You may not like living in Bakersfield. You may not like 
how some of your life went. And I'm not saying that God caused all the bad things that happened to you. He doesn't cause evil to happen to other people. Did that Satan, sinful people, and yourself did it. Um, but nonetheless, he still puts you in a situation that gives you the most advantage spiritually. The gifts that you have right now were selected for you because they give you the best advantage. And that should bring reassurance to you that, yeah, man, you know, some people, you know, I'm in counseling with them and, man, they, they, they don't like what they were given in life. And I get it. I get it. I mean, life dishes out some pretty hard things. I get it. And um, the tendency for them is to blame God. Well, why didn't God do this? Why didn't God do that? And uh, then I, I, I have to refer them back to Acts 17 and say, look, that you're seeing this all wrong. The devil is making you look at God as an enemy. In fact, he's been your biggest help, and you're not seeing it. And so I, I want to make sure that we keep our categories clear and not blend them like Calvinists do, okay? Also, another selection, uh, obviously, um, in your life uh, that God made for you, um, not only your gifts, but He also selected, um, He knit you in your mother's womb. And so, in, in that sense, He formed you as a human being in your mother's womb. I'm not saying he gave you diseases. I'm not saying that. But there was things he did with your body to be able to complete your mission, to be able to do it. Now, you say, well, I don't know, man. I'm going through life with a limp. Uh, yeah, I, I get it. But it's not that God caused the limp. I mean, obviously, the sin, the sin nature, the fall causes us to have infirmities. But did God know you would have those infirmities? Of course he did. Does those infirmities work to your advantage if you allow it to? Yes, it does. So God informing you allows obviously the freedom of the, of the sin nature to affect you, the fall to affect you, but then he knows what will happen to you in your health and different aspects. But... What God does is He takes the bad and He turns it into a good. That's His promise. And so, when you're looking at your life, I mean, a lot of people I, I talk to are, are quite frankly bitter about life. They're they're not they're not too happy about how life went. I get it, I get it. But you're wrong to blame God. God is actually trying to help you through it all. And he's trying to give you the resources and the tools. And if you would just simply see what he's doing, you would see that he's saying, I've been with you the whole time. I've provided this person. I provided that. I provided this. I provided that to help you with your infirmities. And it's your job to see it and actually use those tools he's provided to help you. But a lot of people, they become so bitter with their lives, they don't reach out for the tools anymore. They just stop reaching out. Why is that? He's laying the tools in front of them, saying, here's the resources, here's what you got. Why, 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 won't, why won't they reach? Why won't they go for it? Why won't they use it? Any ideas? Perhaps pride? 
they want to admit that they have all these issues and if they if they have to use the tools they have to humble themselves and admit it yeah you know I, I think all of that stuff um, and therefore if you're going to get help in this life um, you have to then humble yourself to submit to God and I guess the big thing would be quit blaming God for your life because he's the only one trying to help you he really is but Satan has made you perceive reality in a wrong way and you think God is against you or he really doesn't like you that much or something like that so let me bring this back to Calvinism because I'm going somewhere with this the Calvinist says he did make you blind and it was his sovereign choice to make you crippled and it was his sovereign choice to allow you to be raped and it was his sovereign will that allowed you to be molested what excuse me baking powder what did you just say mr. Calvinist that God ordained that I would be raped God ordained bad things would happen to me oh now I know why Christians are angry at God because they have a Calvinist version of a tyrant that has done bad things to them you mean God took my baby away the Calvinist says what it was his sovereign plan well is my baby saved what would the Calvinist say no because they didn't come to faith in the Messiah so I'm sorry your baby is in hell well, not all Calvinists say that, but the doctrine does. Do you see where I'm going with this? Folks, if you do not have a clear picture of who God is and, the, and understand the sovereignty of God, the power and authority, and how he gives that freedom to individuals, you will see God as an adversary, that he is the one who did bad things in your life. Because they're going to say, well, God is sovereign, and nothing's out of his control. But what about the king illustration? Remember the king, does he control what's going on in the little house on his land? No, but he's still a sovereign, right? He still is in control, but yet he doesn't control all the minute details of what's going on in that house on his land because he's given that person freedom. He doesn't know if they're, I mean, the, the king has allowed them to beat their dogs if they want to. You know, that's, that's you know, whatever, to act bad. And so my point is, on, on, a, on a, a sanctification level, even in my counseling, I find that most people are functioning Calvinists and they don't know it because they'll say to me, God doesn't care for me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't watch out for me. God doesn't protect me. And I'll say, why? Why do you say those things? Well, when I was 11, I got molested, and where was he? He just allowed that to happen. He could, God has the power, they say, to stop that. Why didn't he stop that? But he didn't, so therefore I don't trust God because he's not a protector. Or I was crying out in times, uh, you know, I, I went through a terrible divorce, my spouse did a number on me, and I was left and abandoned, and I cried out to God, and I didn't get any help from God. He didn't stop my divorce. He didn't stop my child from dying, and I know he has the power to do so. You see what that does to people? 
They come to me saying that things, and all of what they're spewing out is functioning Calvinism. Why does God allow things to play out like he does? Why? Because of human freedom. That's the answer. Why did bad things happen to you? Because somebody misused their freedom against you, a human being. And then on the demonic side, those creatures are also free too, and they have the freedom to do bad things to you as well. And then you have the power to do bad things to yourself. And then add one more element. Because of the fall, our environment's going to do bad things to you. Your bodies are going to break down. You're going to get diseases. Why? Simply because of the freedom God allows you. The liability in freedom is my children can get hurt. But it's the overarching principle that if I want a true love relationship with my creatures, I must allow them free will. I cannot interfere in their lives. Because if I do, they become nothing but robots. Now, can I call them? Can I prod them? Can I convict them? Of course he does. But he will not violate the will of a human being. He is holding his sovereignty back for that freedom, for that love relationship. So my point is, even we're going to continue on in Romans 9 through 11, but my point is I want you to see how practical we start getting into the, uh, the doctrines that if you believe the wrong things, like Calvinism, where it leads you to in your own walk with the Lord, you will actually start getting mad at God. Most Calvinists are not happy campers. Have you been around some? I'm, I have. They are not happy campers. They are rigid. They are stiff. They, they have no flexibility. They, um, I mean, they, it's, I don't know how to explain it, man. It's, it's like a regime. And, and there's no wiggle room. So, like, if you come to a Calvinist, uh, counselor and you say, hey man, I have this addiction. I have a smoking addiction. I have an alcoholic addiction, a pornography addiction. There's, I know what they're going to tell you. Well, you're just not saved. What? I thought believing in Jesus makes you saved. Oh, but well, if you would be a new creature in Christ, you wouldn't be. You see where it goes? So all that to say, it gets very practical all of a sudden when you flush out that theology. And that's when you know that theology is coming from Doctrines of men, not doctrines of God. And so, again, I, I'm going to take us more into this uh, next time, uh, into Romans. We'll get into Roman, the, the last part of Romans 9. We'll jump into chapter 10, and then eventually we'll get to chapter 11. But any questions before we close up? Yes. Yes, we do. We don't like the consequences. And here's what people do. They're, they're theologically astute to say, God, why didn't you stop me? Why didn't you tell me I was marrying a barbarian? And you know what God says? Your parents told you, but you wouldn't listen to them. And then your sister told you that, hey, I don't like that guy. I have a funny feeling about that guy. And you just ignored it. Is that you? Okay. Well, <laughs> people are confessing tonight. <laughs> You said it, but they didn't listen to you. Well, God bless you for saying it. At least you're a watchman on the wall. 
They'll, they, when, hey, when, when it comes time for that payday, you say, I told you so. Right? Okay. Jeff. And, and we'll talk about the, when we talk about the plan of God, because how does prayer work? Because the Calvinists, there's no point of praying, right? How does prayer work when God already knows what's going to happen? Have you ever thought about that? That'll be your homework. Stephen. The rules that govern a doctrine. The number one rule, it better be in Scripture. That's the first one. Well, yeah, to establish a... You have to have witnesses, yeah. So the Scripture will witness to it. It's called the analogy of Scripture. So the Scripture will support, like the doctrine of the Trinity. You'll see the doctrine of the Trinity all spread out through the Bible. It's not just in one book. It'll be spread out. So that's where you get your theology proper, uh, Christology, pneumatology, all that stuff, because it's 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 mentioned mul- uh, m- multiple times throughout different books of the Bible, and then you synthesize all that together, and that gives you your systematic, and tells you what the doctrine is. So yeah, that's how you do. It. But f- my friend, the Calvinists don't start with Scripture; they start with presuppositions about things. Well, I, I, yeah, um, the main rule you would use is proper hermeneutics, proper biblical interpretation. Because if you're not using the rules of hermeneutics, you're not going to know what that text means. And so, um, now people say they follow hermeneutics, but what you start seeing with these other doctrines that are floating out there, they don't follow the rules of hermeneutics. And so, therefore, they ignore them. They ignore the rules of hermeneutics. Like, for instance, Calvinists are cessationists, right? Do you know what a cessationist is? It's, it's a, someone that doesn't believe in healings, miracles, tongues. Okay? These are all done uh, according to the cessationists. Calvinist, most reformed individuals are cessationists. Now, what's the truth about this? Well, they'll use 1 Corinthians 13 as their proof text, and it'll say, when the perfect comes, and then, you know, tongues and healings and miracles will all disappear. And that's typically the argument, and they say, well, see, the, the perfect is the New Testament, which typically the New Testament is called the Didache, so it's not, that word's not used, but it says the perfect. And if it was referring to the New Testament, then it would have to be uh, feminine, but the perfect is in, in a neuter. Oh. So then you have the Pentecostals and the Charismatics that then say, well, the perfect is the parousia, the second coming of the Messiah. Well, parousia is also feminine. But Perusa is not even talked about in the text. So I don't know where you're getting Didache. I don't know where you're getting Perusia because that's not in the context. So when I start realizing and you start studying these texts and you use the rules of hermeneutics, the Greek rule is this, that when you're using certain tenses, the tenses have to match what you're saying. You just can't have a neuter tense refer to a feminine tense. Then that's not the referent. So in that passage, as an example, when it says, when the perfect comes, tongues will cease, it's the, the perfect is in the neuter. Therefore, the antecedent must be in the neuter as well in order to follow the rules of hermeneutics and Greek rules. Guess what? If you just keep going back, is in the neuter that Paul is referring to in chapter 12. The soma, which is in the Greek neuter, 
and the soma refers to the body of Christ. Bingo! The Calvinists and the Charismatics are both wrong because neither camp is following the neuter in the Greek language. And the neuter says, the perfect is when the body of Christ is completed, then the gifts cease. When is the body of Christ completed according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11? It says, until the fullness of the Gentile comes in, that's when the body of Christ is completed. And when the body of Christ is completed, then what calls the body of Christ home? The rapture. We have our answer. When the body of Christ is completed and the last Gentile is saved, according to the Apostle Paul, which is agreement with the neuter, then at the rapture, the the gifts cease and are no longer in effect. So the Charismatics and the Pentecostals are wrong and the Calvinists are wrong because neither camp will follow the rules. Here's my question. Why wouldn't they follow the rules of Greek? Why? It's right there. It's right there. Why? So you got these people pounding the drum. Tongues have ceased. Okay, tongues is a native language, a foreign language. Tongues have ceased. Prove it. Well, it says when the perfect come, that, that must mean the New Testament. That's not what that says. And then you have the Pentecostals over here telling you, no, tongues is not going to cease until the second coming. So I'm going to go all through and you have the second blessing and all this other junk. And you're like, dude, both camps are making up stuff. You're just making stuff up. So what you start to realize is denominations are not playing the game right. They're just not. They're just not playing the game right. It's a rigged game in a lot of theologies. So you answer that question on your own. Why would you not follow the rules of Greek when you know the rules of Greek? That's your homework. The other homework is this. If Calvinism is right, then your prayers don't matter because you're not going to be able to convince God of anything because he's sovereign. He's just going to do what he wants to do. Okay, so in the free will understanding of God, how does prayers affect God if he already knows what's going to happen? Is your prayers effectual? It says, James, James says your prayers are effectual. How do they affect God? Can you change God? He looks at how you look at things. Oh, that's a form. Of, yeah, I get you're conforming your prayers to his. No? Okay. So when he, when you're praying for healing, let's say, and um, or you have other people praying for healing, and he says, no, I'm not going to heal you. Well, I'm just as a hypothetical. Hypothetical. So you're praying for healing. I, I need to be able to walk. I, I, I'm a, I have all these people praying for me. And he says no. And he doesn't heal you. Um, was it that you didn't have enough prayers? Was it that you didn't have enough effectual prayers from a righteous man? Is it what, what, Why didn't he answer that? Does your prayers matter to God? How so? How so? Sure, but let's get let's get real brass tacks here. You want something, you want something, and your want is legitimate. 
It's not like you're asking for Fort Knox and, you know, a Tahiti trip or something like that, but you're like, I want healing. I want, I want this good thing to happen in my life. I want someone to wake up. I want this. You're asking for a good thing. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. So what I'm trying to get at is this. The Calvinists basically say your prayers are ineffectual. It doesn't make a difference because he's going to do what he wants to do. He's sovereign. He's control. And he's going to do what he wants to do. So why pray? Why evangelize? Why do any of that, right? It basically nullifies prayer. And they'll say, well, we just pray because it's our duty. Or we evangelize because it's our duty. That's the worst motivation I could possibly imagine. I'm going to pray because it's my duty, but yet when I pray, nothing happens. He hears me, but he's not going to do anything I say. Not that I want him to do anything I said, but it makes prayer just simply a ritual. If I have a relationship with God, it's not my duty to pray. I want to talk to him, not only to get on the right side, but then if he does answer my, my prayers, why would he do that? Would he change the course of things for me? Or is it already mapped out? So in that case, it's like what Jeff brought up. Why let, why, why let James die and get Peter out of prison instead? I mean, pre, Peter obviously eventually died a martyr, being crucified upside down. But in the theolo- theological situation that you're in, you're right. You had all the prayer you could get, right? Everybody's been praying for that little boy, and then he passes away. So my, my, my question then, as being those who believe in libertarian free will, which Calvinists do not believe, in this situation in dealing with God in prayer, what, how, much, how much influence or how much prayers do you need or whatever, uh, if you want to call it, quantity, quality of prayer, do you need in order to be heard if that prayer gets answered or what? So here's, here's another thing to ask, ask the, to bring into the aspects of prayer. And I want you to think about this because it re- re- relates to what we're studying with Calvinism. There are conditions that need to be met in prayer, obviously. And if you've never studied the conditions that need to be met, it's a good study to have because there's a lot of conditions that need to be met in order for God to answer prayer. Does he answer in the affirmative all the time? No. But there are conditions that need to be met. Okay? And he spells those out. If you're interested, email me and I'll send you a packet of what are the conditions of prayer. So that's the first thing you have to know. Are the conditions being met for prayer? Like, for instance, if you're living in sin, is your prayers being heard? Uh, no. That's one of the conditions for your prayers being heard is that you're living a righteous life. That you're not out robbing banks and doing crazy things. So if you're doing crazy things, your prayers are not going further than the ceiling. Because he says, I'm not listening to you. When you're acting this way, I'm not listening to you. And that's just an example of one. And then uh, you have uh, other examples of you have to have righteous people praying for you at the same time because the prayer of a righteous person avails much more than an average person who's immature. So mature believers are praying. That's a condition that needs to be met. And there's there's got to be like, I don't know, I think there's like 20-something conditions. With that being said, I want you to start thinking about the conditions for prayer 
in your life because there are conditions that you have to meet to be heard by the by the Father through the Messiah. And, and then at that point, then we can start discussing why James says when people pray, they pray amiss, right? He said, that's the one thing he says, that most, most people who get themselves in a certain situation will pray amiss about their lives and about others. And so a lot of times their prayers are not being answered because they have the wrong ideas about God, about theology and whatnot. But I'm still... I still want to press you on it, and I want you to think real deep about your prayer life. In a libertarian, free will world that God has created, how much effect does prayer have on Him? Okay? Now, I'm not asking you for a percentage. I'm just wanting to know a good biblical answer so that you're clear that when you pray you know how it affects God, okay? And how he, how he can build that into his plans, okay? All right, one, one last question, we'll go. Chad? That's okay. So think of on that. You can text me when you figure it out. So um, I want you to think through that because that's, that, that will, if you get the, the right concept of prayer, it will revive your prayer life. It, it really, it, it won't be this boring routine of duty that Calvinism has made it. Calvinism, make, Calvinism makes prayer just simply a duty. And the idea, well, you know, uh, we pray and we give glory to God and we thank Him for what He's done, but really praying for things in our life, that's it. Forget that. You can't do that. It's like the whole category is simply removed in Calvinism because you can't change what God's going to do. But I see passages in Scripture where Hezekiah was asked to, to, to live a little longer and God gave him 15 years. I see things where people pray and something changed. God changed the plan. How is that possible? I thought he's in so totally sovereign, totally in control. Well, he is, but does he allow freedom? Yes, he does. And think about this. God actually built into the program, into the architecture, how prayer works in this world. He actually planned in the architecture of how he created life, how prayer would be effectual in his plans. He actually, it's like an architect building a building and designing it, and he has all the plans. He actually planned in the plan where prayer fits and how prayer influences. And it does matter how many people are praying. And it does matter how many righteous, mature people are praying. It does matter because according to the plan, He allowed that. And we'll talk about that next week. Prayer is very powerful. One of your greatest, greatest weapons against the enemies of darkness. Let's pray. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode 
or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.